Dame 40 here, and I was just so mad at this person. I was so mad because they reminded me of me. Like, here I am bloviating 10, 15, 20 hours a week and frequently bloviating on things that I don't know very much about. And so what do you think really gets me mad? I'm going to come back here a thousand times if I have to. But what really gets me mad is when people make proclamations about books and articles that they haven't read. Oh, gosh, they shouldn't do that. But I don't know. It's just a, a trait that seems psychopathic to me. But it's really not such a big deal. But I react so strongly to it because, okay, I think my father would do that. And I've done that. I mean, people have noted, like, all through my life that I very confidently proclaim on all sorts of topics that I know absolutely nothing about. And I'm not proud of this, but I'm going to come back here a thousand times if I have to. Oi. But I, I've noticed other people doing this, and, and they, it doesn't lead to, to good results, right? If you get that out of touch with reality that you're very confidently proclaiming on, on books and articles that, that you haven't read, it's often a sign that your life's off track or maybe you're just a live streamer or a pundit. And uh, maybe it's maybe it's even adaptive in some circumstances. Not very academic. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson's Night. So last Thursday, last week, on Thursday, talk show host Stephen Colbert dispatched a group of seven of his employees to Washington, D.C. Their job, break into the U.S. Capitol complex and harass lawmakers inside. So the group dutifully arrived in the afternoon and were met almost immediately by uniformed Capitol Hill police officers who threw them out. But apparently on orders from Colbert, they returned. At about 4 p.m. on Thursday, the group re-entered the building. Accounts vary as to what exactly happened next, but it seems clear that Colbert's employees were led inside by an ally within the building. That would be a freshman member of Congress from Massachusetts called Jake Auchincloss. Once on federal property, Colbert's employees did what they came to do, which was disrupt the business of Congress. And apparently they were not subtle about doing it. They pounded on doors and yelled. Whatever they did, it got people's attention. It takes an awful lot for a police force controlled by Nancy Pelosi to arrest a group of left-wing entertainment figures. But that's exactly what happened next. Capitol Hill police arrested seven Colbert employees and brought them to jail. All seven of them were charged with unlawful entry. Now, that's the identical charge that hundreds of January 6th defendants have been prosecuted for. But unlike January 6th defendants, Colbert's employees were not sent to the D.C. jail for a year and a half in solitary confinement. No, they were released after only a night behind bars, and then they fled back to New York. Why is that? What exactly is the difference in the crime? As a legal question, we still don't know the answer. For some reason, Capitol Hill police have not released the surveillance tapes that would show exactly what Colbert's employees did that so triggered the police force controlled by Nancy Pelosi that they were arrested. But whatever they did, otherwise sympathetic members of Congress are running away from it as quickly as they can. Quote, we do not condone any inappropriate activity within the Capitol. Jake Auchincloss's office told us today. Though as a factual matter, that is not true. In fact, Jake Auchincloss has a recent history of condoning criminal behavior in the Capitol. Just this March, surveillance cameras in the complex caught Jake Auchincloss's chief of staff, that would be a former Adam Schiff staffer called Tim Heisem, vandalizing the front door of Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's personal office. 
Heisum did this not once, but several times, violently, like a man obsessed. Capitol Hill police quickly filed an arrest warrant against him because Tim Heisum clearly posed a threat to a member of Congress. But Jake Auchincloss did not fire him. Instead, Jake Auchincloss defended Heisum's vandalism as noble and justified. Our office is not going to apologize, read a long and self-righteous statement from Jake Auchincloss. In other words, we don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene's politics, therefore we can do whatever we want to her, and we will. For the most part, the media ignored this story, so Jake Auchincloss and Adam Schiff felt emboldened to go further. They invited Colbert's employees to the Capitol to harass Marjorie Taylor Greene some more, which is what they were trying to do when they were arrested by Capitol Hill police. Now, whatever you think of her politics, Marjorie Taylor Greene is a sitting member of Congress. Preventing her or any other member of Congress from carrying out official duties as a public representative is, by definition, an attack on democracy. So how is what Stephen Colbert did different from what the protesters on January 6th have been convicted of doing? That's a very good question. And it's a question that Colbert himself spent the weekend thinking about. His conclusion, well, unlike Trump voters, Stephen Colbert is a very good person. Therefore, any comparison to Trump voters is not simply ridiculous. It is a moral crime. Watch. Now, it's predictable why these TV talkers are talking like this on the TV. They want to talk about something other than the January 6th hearings on the actual seditionist insurrection that led to the deaths of multiple people and the injury of over 140 police officers. But drawing any equivalence between rioters storming our Capitol to prevent the counting of electoral ballots and a cigar-chomping toy dog is a shameful and grotesque insult to the memory of everyone who died. And it obscenely trivializes the service and the courage the Capitol Police showed on that terrible day. <laughs> yeah, it was a toy dog. It's shameful. In other words, when you criticize me, you're really criticizing the brave Capitol Police officers who arrested the people who worked for me, the ones who committed the crimes I asked them to commit. And I, for one, will not stand for that. That's what he just said. Now, what you have there is not so much an explanation. In fact, it doesn't explain anything. Instead, it's a master's class on whiny, rich, liberal self-righteousness. It's a distillation of a worldview that is so concise and so perfect, it is certain to be studied by cultural historians of the future seeking to understand how our civilization collapsed. Not only am I not sorry, you're the criminal for bringing it up. Stop hitting me, he screams as he punches you in the face. <laughs> that is passive aggression taken to the level of art. And anyway, Colbert says, shut up. I'm a, his, I'm a comedian with a toy dog. You can't criticize me. So the question really is, is Stephen Colbert a comedian? Well, if you're one of the relatively few people who still watches Stephen Colbert's show on CBS, you'll have to admit it is hard to tell. Most nights, Stephen Colbert sounds like the notably unfunny Corinne Jean-Pierre. He sounds like a Biden flack, delivering whatever talking points the White House tells him to repeat. And if you doubt that, here's what it looks like. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Biden did it. He's our next president. The biggest story continues to be the one you were thinking about when you weren't sleeping last night. And it's the one happening all over America. The protests in wake of the murder of George Floyd. And please don't buy the false narrative that these are lawless mobs. The vast majority of these protests have been peaceful. There's a simple, if extremely difficult, solution. Reduce the number of guns. We've done it before, and it worked. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a humanitarian crisis, but also it is a triumph of humanity. Take that, Putin. Okay, so I might have the most privilege of any white person you've ever met. You're, you're, How do you're I show. identify that in my own life? Because I, if, if I have white privilege, I want to be able to identify it. Give me some hints as to my white privilege. Surrender your guns. Support Ukraine. And remember, it's called Kiev now. This isn't comedy. It's a very sad midlife crisis. But more than that, it's information war being waged against television viewers on behalf of the Democratic Party. At least when the White House press secretary does it, she admits what she's doing. Colbert hides behind his former job as a comedian. It was all a joke. When people, I don't like, break into the Capitol, it's insurrection. When we do it, it's sketch comedy. Right. It's getting hard to maintain that lie. And here's how you know. Comedians have a sense of humor. It is, in fact, a job requirement. But Stephen Colbert does not. Stephen Colbert has lost his sense of humor, along with the critical distance and perspective that make humor possible. At this point, he's just a partisan scold. And you know that for certain. Because even as he watched the QAnon shaman parade around the Capitol on January 6th, Stephen Colbert did not laugh. Now, an actual comedian, whatever his politics, would have found that spectacle hilarious because, let's be honest, it was. Hey! Hey, man. Glad to see you guys. You guys are patriots. Look at this guy. He's got covered in blood. God bless you. Yes, sir. You good, sir? Do you need medical attention? I'm good. Thank you. All right. I got shot in the face. Where are they? I got shot in the face with some kind of plastic bullet. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure they ain't disrespecting the place. Okay, just want to let you guys know, this is like the sacredest place. Hey! This is the guy in the bearskin and the horn hat. That's not hilarious? Yes, it is hilarious. No, he's a seditious insurrectionist, said Colbert. He needs to go to jail. He's a terrorist. And when he was sent to jail, Colbert applauded. Now, that's how Maoist cadres act. That's not how comedians act. So Stephen Colbert may be a late-night host still for some reason, but he has zero sense of humor. He ought to step aside and let some young person who still gets the joke to have the job. But he won't. Here's Colbert on November 6, 2020. Watch. And if you did not know that Joe Biden was getting close to 270, Donald Trump just provided all the proof you will ever need. True story. I'm wearing black tonight because I was getting dressed this afternoon and I thought he might try some shenanigans and it might be fitting to tell jokes while wearing something somber if he goes down that dark path. So we all knew he would do this. What I didn't know is that it would hurt so much. Those are real tears. The only real thing about that show. We're not trying to belabor the point. But the guy's not a comedian. You watch a comedian, you think, that guy's hilarious. I'd love to meet him. Imagine eating a meal with Stephen Colbert. Chances are you somehow offend him over the course of a typical dinner by saying something he finds offensive. What are the chances of that? 100%. Stephen Colbert is a Karen. He's a brittle, middle-aged woman who's always lecturing you about something. In fact, he's Elizabeth Warren. They even look alike. 
Have you seen them in the same room recently? No. Sad. He was talented at one point. So was Robert Smigel. That's one of the Colbert employees who was also arrested last week. Smigel's been doing his dog puppet routine for 30 years. That's the one that Colbert is now hiding behind. It was just a dog puppet. The dog puppet was kind of funny during the Clinton administration. It is pure hackery now. Smigel keeps going because he's got a political message for you. I'm going to beat you over the head with my political message. Ah! No one laughs at Robert Smigel anymore. It's pathetic. Who's funnier, Robert Smigel or the guy who took pictures of himself at Nancy Pelosi's desk on January 6th? Be honest. It's not even close. The guy at Pelosi's desk is hilarious compared to the guy with the talking dog. And none of them is half as funny, again, sorry, it's true, as Donald Trump. And how do you know that? Show us the late night host who said anything half as amusing as Trump's taco bowl tweet. Ever? Any of them? No, never. These people are so afraid. They're so terrified holding on to their stupid jobs late into middle age. Then how do they respond to Cinco de Mayo? Fawning over the indigenous cuisine of the Latinx community. <laughs> Nobody likes that. And that's why in the end, Stephen Colbert has not a single Hispanic viewer. His audience is entirely self-hating white liberals like him. So nobody watches anymore. And that's fine. That's CBS's problem. But don't tell us you're a comedian and therefore exempt from the normal rules of behavior and the normal federal laws about trespassing, because you're not. You did what they did, and you should be punished in exactly the same way. We thought it would be interesting to get a, a comedic perspective on this from someone who actually still practices comedy. Joel Berry is the managing editor of the Babylon Bee, one of the funniest sites on the internet. He joins us tonight. Joel, thanks so much for coming on. I feel sort of bad beating up on poor old Stephen Colbert, who really is just about a decade past his time. But... You must be offended as a professional practitioner of actual comedy to hear this guy say, no, I'm a comedian. Don't judge me. <laughs> well, you know, for, I don't know if I, I qualify as a professional comedian. I mean, according to The New York Times, uh, I am a disinformation purveyor uh, that does so under the guise of satire. So, um, you know, I, I'm not a, br a brilliant professional comedian like uh, Colbert or, or Seth Meyers or Amy Schumer or Trevor Noah. Um, oh, come it, on. You know, now, but, uh, now you're being mean, Joel Berry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, I, I say this with sadness being because, mean, you know, Joel. Colbert has been brilliant in the past. You know, the Colbert yes, show was, was brilliant and 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 he has become a, a political operative. And I think it's reflective of what's happened, you know, in the wider culture that um, the left kind of invades and, and infects institutions that have built up trust and goodwill over decades, sometimes centuries, and, and uh, it uses them as a platform and a mouthpiece for their agenda. And, and that's what we've seen. You know, that's why we have uh, woke sermons that are disguised as summer blockbuster entertainment. We have progressive indoctrination that is disguised as uh, public education. And in Colbert's case, we have political punditry that is disguised as comedy. And it, it's just not funny. You know, sanctimony and, and uh, self-righteousness uh, is just not funny. You, you can't be funny and, and take yourself seriously at the same time. As a comedian, you have to be willing to, to kind of be the fool, you know? Well, yeah. And he seems maybe uniquely among the late night hosts to really kind of believe it. You look at Jimmy Kimmel, for example, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't believe it. He's just going through the hey, 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 white people. Okay, got it. You have to say that. <laughs> but Colbert really seems to have bought this stuff in a really, again, sad, middle-aged way. Why not just kind of pull the plug on yourself if you're him? And why not stand 
for the same justice meted out to the January 6th insurrectionists? Why sort of hide behind this fake job description? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think he, in Colbert's case, he's, he's kind of an example of, of a comedian who's gotten caught up in, in narrative. Um, and, and as comedians, it's important to, to be able to step outside of narrative and, and poke holes in the absurdity in, in all of our narratives, whether it's on your side, whether it's on I the agree. other side. Um, we try to do that at the Babylon Bee. We, we poke fun at the church. We poke fun at, at the right as well as the left. And, and as soon as you kind of lose the plot of, of what comedy is supposed to be about, um, it, it, it's not funny anymore. I, I mean, couldn't, we, couldn't we have, um, you know, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Joel Berry, Babylon B. Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. So a couple months ago, Justice Alito's draft opinion that if it became a decision would overturn Roe v. Wade was leaked. And in the wake of that, violent activists have harassed justices at their homes. They've also targeted pro-life groups more than 40 times. There have been dozens of attacks on churches and pro-life pregnancy counseling centers in recent months. Here's just a sampling of them. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. That's just part of the message outside Wisconsin Family Action here, and it continues inside the building. Madison police say it appears someone threw a Molotov cocktail inside the building. This building was up in flames this morning when police and firefighters arrived, and this is the aftermath. Broken windows, shattered glass, and graffiti. CEO Jim Hardin says this didn't come as a complete shock. Recently, Compass Care has been receiving threats online and in person. The graffiti on the side of the building says Jane was here. And Hardin says he thinks the abortion rights group Jane's Revenge is behind the attack. Well, Nancy Pelosi, who, as she has told us many times, is very Catholic, was given a chance to condemn these attacks, which would seem to be very easy for any humane person who believes in law and decency. Instead, here's what Nancy Pelosi said. There has been a number of attacks on, uh, on, on churches, on uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Republicans are going after <clears throat> Democrats for not saying anything, and they're saying that, that your rhetoric is contributing to these attacks on these crisis pregnancy centers. Well, let what me are just Democrats say this. On this? A woman has a right to choose, to live up to her responsibility. It's up to her, her doctor, her family, her husband, her her significant other, and her God. I'm a very Catholic person, and I believe in every woman's right to make her own decisions. So how hard is it to say if you're purportedly a Christian, and she claims to be, throws it in your face, in fact, told us several years ago that MS-13 were children of God, how hard is it to say, you know, whatever you think about abortion, I'm for it, you're against it, fine. You can't attack churches, and you can't attack faithful Christians because they're Christians. But she couldn't say that. It shows you that she's not a Christian. She's a poser and in a better of violence. Victor Davis Hanson is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He joins us tonight. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for coming. It, kind of chilling that the Speaker of the House can't just flatly condemn attacks on churches. Yeah, I think there's two, two messages, Tucker. The most immediate is deterrence. And I think when you can get away with attacking pro-life groups, or you can swarm the houses, and that's a felony to do so, of uh, Supreme Court justices, and intimidate them. Or you can swarm a Catholic diocese and break in during a service, and there's no consequences. That sends a message. And the message the left wants to send is, 
you better be careful because the government is on our side and not on your side, and they're going to selectively right. prosecute or arrest. And that's the message. And it also empowers our own people. It emboldens them. If we get away with putting graffiti on a person's uh, office or burning down, what's the next thing? The second message is, I, I, I hesitate to say this, Tucker, but I don't think we're, we're a society that is ruled by law. We're in a revolutionary period right now, something like 18th century France or 1920s Russia, where the law is fluid and it's whatever the power to be says it is. So if you're, just to take some examples, if you're James O'Keefe or you're Peter Navarro or you're Roger Stone, you're going to have an FBI come down on you like you don't know what. But if you refuse a, you know, a subpoena like Eric uh, Holder did, or if you lie uh, to a federal investigator like Andrew McCabe did, or you lie under oath to the U.S. Congress like both John Brennan and James Clapper, there's no consequences, very little. And, and so the law is uh, designed that on the premise that the, the noble ends justifies any means necessary. And the left is def has uh, defined those means as radical equality, fairness, social justice, not the constitutional law. And so I think right now people are really weird, uh, bizarre. They see May 31st, 2020, a mob come from Lafayette Square tries to torch down a historic church, tries to swarm on federal property, the White House grounds, sends the president into a bunker with his family, and there's very little consequences as compared to January 6th. And so I think the law is very fluid. Merrick Garland is, is much to blame, so is Joe Biden. Yes. But it's part of the left ideology that's in ascendance right now. And it's very scary because I think most Americans realize if you are a particular political persuasion and you break the law or you're accused of breaking the law, you're going to be treated very differently oh, very than differently. others. Yeah. Stephen Colbert is exulting in that fact tonight. Vic Davis Hanson, great to see you. Thank you so much. I am so mad. Thank you. So there's recently a horrifying school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and one of the worst parts about it we learned later is that police were on the scene, they were armed, and somehow the shooting continued. They seem to have allowed it. Well, new photos taken from within the school prove what officers were doing while these murders were happening. We'll show those to you next. Yeah, I mean, the, the police response is just awful and I just have this instinctive respect for law enforcement and this instinctive respect for the FBI. And I, I'm having to rethink this instinctive respect. But I don't know about you. I'm really curious what Michael Strahan has to say. Come on, Michael. ...into the Uvalde, Texas Elementary. Now to the latest on the investigation into the Uvalde, Texas Elementary School shooting. Four weeks after 19 children and two teachers were killed, we're learning new details about the police response and seeing the first surveillance image from inside speak. Rob Elementary on that day. Good morning, Maria. Maria. Good morning, Michael. Uvalde parents angry after being kicked out of a city building yesterday where a state hearing was being held on this investigation. They are demanding transparency and they also want Chief Pete Arredondo fired. This morning, the first surveillance image from inside Rob Elementary emerges, obtained by ABC affiliate KVU in Austin. 
The photo showing multiple police officers standing inside the building with rifles and at least one ballistic shield 19 minutes after the gunman entered at 11.52 a.m. This, despite school police chief Pete Arredondo's original claim that the officers were... I don't know, just looking at him fills me with confidence. I don't know what everyone's complaining about. I mean, he ran to the site. I mean, he didn't have a radio, but... ...properly armed to take down the gunman at that point. Officers didn't enter the classroom and kill the shooter until 58 minutes later. Point is, this is what's normal for police response. They keep talking about how, oh, they're not following protocol, but it seems like mass shooting after mass shooting, this is how the police respond by not responding. They establish the perimeter, wait until everyone's dead, and then they go in afterwards. I mean, this is the norm for police response. This isn't exceptional. This isn't weird. This isn't them breaking protocol. I mean, it may be them breaking official protocol, but this is what they do with school shooting after school shooting after more shooting. They wait until everyone's dead. They establish the perimeter. They, they prevent brave people from going in to take on the shooter. They, they want to let the shooter finish his slaughter and then off himself before they get involved. I mean, this is the norm. This isn't exceptional. This isn't weird. This isn't unique. Yeah, it breaks protocol. The protocol of theory doesn't break the protocol of reality. Police have yet to comment on that surveillance image. Now, four weeks after the massacre, which killed 19 students and two teachers, more discrepancies emerging. Despite officers claiming they were waiting for a key to unlock the classroom door, surveillance video shows they never even tried to open it. And the question remaining, how long did they know children were inside alive calling 911? Is there anybody inside of the building? Tyler is advising he is in the room full of victims. Full of victims at this moment. Uh, eight to nine children. At 12.03 p.m., 12.10, 12.13, and 12.16, 911 calls. They continue until 12.47 p.m., but it's not until 12.50 that officers finally go in. Now, as Texas lawmakers prepare for another round of hearings, embattled Chief Arredondo expected to speak to at least one committee investigating. Arredondo has defended his actions in interviews, saying officers didn't hesitate to save lives, but had to adjust to what they faced. But family members fed up. Having Pete still employed, knowing he is incapable of decision-making that saves lives is terrible. I mean, you just... Gosh, I, I just hope that you guys don't give in to lookism and think just because a guy is fat and doesn't look very smart that that means he is not an effective police officer. So please, I want to warn you about the dangers of lookism. I don't want you to look at these police officers and, and, and think they look incompetent. They look like they're lacking in intelligence. They look cowardly. They look like they lack initiative because you don't want to buy into the false myths uh, about you know, trying to read people just from their looks. I, I, what's that? What's that fancy word? Physiognomy is real. I don't want you to look at this story. Please don't look at this story. Please, 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 please don't look at this story. Please don't think physiognomy is real. That is an absolute trap. I mean, this is the elites. They're setting you up to believe that physiognomy is real, that somehow a, a fat police officer is going to be less effective that then a, a slim one don't give into this this is just hateful 
Physiognomy is not real. Physiognomy tells you absolutely nothing uh, about people. So, so don't let them mess with you that way. Don't buy into that false, false meme that physiognomy is real. Please. So leaders in both parties wasted not a single moment before using the horrifying mass murder in Uvalde, Texas, to justify gun confiscation. In fact, even right now, tonight, Mitch McConnell and John Cornyn, both of whom are Republican senators and neither of whom should be, are working toward unconstitutional gun confiscation legislation. And they're telling us that's the only thing that might have prevented these murders. But that's not true. We have new information tonight that confirms what we suspected for quite some time. The police were there. They were heavily armed. They could have stepped in, but they chose not to. The details are amazing. And Fox's Trace Gallagher has them for us tonight. Hey, Trace. And Tucker, using security video and body camera transcripts, investigators put together a police response they now call an abject failure. And here's why. The shooter entered the school at 11.33 a.m. Three minutes later, 11 police officers enter the hallway outside the class. But instead of going in, they retreat in the face of gunfire and stay there for the rest of the standoff without firing a single shot. At the center of the response is Pete Arredondo, the chief of the Uvalde School District Police. He says the classroom doors were locked and he did not have the equipment to break them down. But video shows there was no attempt by any officer to open the doors. And the director of Texas DPS says the doors were unlocked. Arredondo also says he did not have the tools or weapons to respond, yet video shows just 19 minutes after police arrived, while shots are being fired, while kids are still calling 911, police had rifles. They had a halogen axe to break down the door and a ballistic shield, but did nothing. It took another 50 minutes for Border Patrol agents to go in and finally kill the gunman. Tucker. That is just a, that's a shocking story. Trace Gallagher for us tonight. Thank you so much. And a puzzling story, too. Why? They all cowards? What, what is that exactly? We should know. Well, late last year, a 24-year-old Honduran migrant posed as an unaccompanied minor to gain entry into this country. The Biden administration promptly flew that illegal alien to Florida, where he brutally stabbed a father of four to death. But according to National Public Radio, which is literally state media controlled by the state working on behalf of Joe Biden, according to NPR, none of this is cause for concern. In fact, it's all right-wing disinformation. Fox News has devoted multiple segments to these so-called ghost flights. To be clear, these flights are legal. In fact, the federal government is required to care for these children by law until they can be placed with a sponsor in the U.S., usually a parent or other relative. Federal officials say that flights carrying migrant children happen at all hours and that they don't release information about the children on board to protect their privacy. Biden officials say all of this was the same during the Trump administration. Even the contractor operating the charter flights hasn't changed. But none of that has silenced the president's critics. NPR's Joel Rose, ladies and gentlemen. Do you suppose Joel Rose tells other parents at his kids' soccer games, I'm a journalist? Do you suppose he really believes that? That was just fully Soviet. That was just a guy flacking for the political party in charge while working for state media. I'm a journalist. No, you're not, Joel Rose. Don't lie to yourself. What you just said is not true. People from as far away as India are now crossing our border into our country because Joe Biden is inviting them. The Daily College Jorge Ventura spoke to some of them. 
India? Yeah, India. India? India. This is 2.45 in the morning in Yuma. India? Yes, yes, yes. India, India? Yes. India? Cubano? Cuba. Cubano? Colombia. Colombia. Total collapse of the United States. There's no other way to describe it. Miranda Devon is a columnist with the New York Post. She joins us tonight. Miranda, thanks so much for coming on. Um, we're not allowed. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Guys, they're bringing very important job skills. So, so don't buy into right-wing disinformation. They're going to make our economy great again. And please don't, don't buy into physiognomy. Physiognomy is not real. Right, this is a highly competent police officer. Don't think that just because, just don't think anything negative about him, just because you don't happen with your heterosexist, white, male, Christian, European ideals of masculine beauty, you don't think that this guy looks like a shining specimen of a, a killer cop. So so please, cut cut that crap out, man. Don't. Don't give in to physiognomy and, and don't blame police when they start murdering people because they got an anonymous 911 call that something bad was going down and then they go and shoot a totally innocent man. But please don't blame the police. Don't even ask that they name the, the police murderer. So death by SWAT First time that following night. from the, the Netflix new series Web of Make-Believe Death Lies in the Internet. Remember that... Uh, those kids who are swatting people and an innocent man ended up getting murdered by the cop. So I place 98% of the blame on the cop, right? maybe 99%, maybe 95%. I don't blame primarily the kids making swatting calls, even though I hate the, the making of swatting calls or any public nuisance like that. But the police pulled the trigger and, and for no reason other than that the man was told to put his hands up and he let one hand drop down. So then you execute him and they provided him no medical assistance while he was lying dying for 20 minutes. They, had, they made people step over him as he's lying dying. They provide nothing for this guy. There was still blood on the front porch, on the carpet of the entryway. And that's when I did my first interview with Lisa. We were here with the mother of last night's Wichita Police Department shooting victim. It's like, I don't... I don't really know how to tell you this, but it was a dollar fifty bet on Call of Duty Online. That's I don't blame the kids primarily for this murder. It was the cops who did it, and the cop who did it, he got away with it. He wasn't even charged. The root of all this. A dollar fifty bet. I think it was disgusting, but it happened. And they're gonna have to face it. Everybody's gonna have to deal with it because it did happen. You know, even myself. I have to deal with it. No matter how big an asshole he is, no matter how terrible a person he is, at the end of the day, Tyler didn't pull the trigger. Twelve other officers that night did not pull the trigger. There was one officer that pulled the trigger. The reaction was anger in this area. It was a senseless murder, and we hope to find out more information as it comes out. We need to stand out and make sure things like this don't happen, hold people accountable, and be here for those who have lost this great man, 28 years young. I think people are pretty horrified about what happened. They are fearful. They know it could happen to anybody. If you have a police force which does the opposite of de-escalation in situations like this, you have these tragedies. In Wichita, Kansas in general, 
they don't name officers. Uh, they protect officers. Yeah, so it's important to know that the, the department has a long history of not releasing names of officers involved in shootings. It's very difficult to get information on these incidents. Kansas has possibly the weakest. Oh, come on, guys. It's important to know that the, the police don't name officers who go out and murder people. It's important that you know that, right? It's important that you know that, please. And and it's the prankster, all right? It's not, right? It's not the, it's not the cops. So, show your hands. Here's the body cam footage. Walk this way. Walk. Just murdered him. Just because he didn't have his hands up. Great job, dude. So, innocent man, he has no idea why SWAT has showed up, and the police just gun him down, murder him. Yeah, just gun him down in cold blood. And no charges against the police officer who murdered him. And they didn't even want to release the guy's name. And this guy had a Walk this way! He had a long history of bad behavior. Walk! Of being an overly aggressive cop. Many complaints about him. Hey! Front door! Head! 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 So 11 out of the 12 cops didn't shoot him. So thank God for the small miracles. Just one cop did, but they wouldn't charge him. He's right there, he's right there. Yeah, we got through a crossfire. So no charges for, for the cop who, who murdered him and the police department even didn't even want to release his name. Open records law in the country. They basically hope that you don't find out and that the statute of limitations expires so that they don't have to pay out on a case. The national average for shootings was about one for every 1,300 officers. In Wichita, 2012, we had one shooting death for every 120 officers approximately. So okay, so Wichita pol police execute people at about uh, 12 times the... The general rate. Developing story. Officers say a prank 911 call cost an innocent man his life. Yeah, an officer shot and killed a man in Wichita when responding to that fake call for help. And for the first time, we are hearing that call. Last night, a man called 911. With an emergency that seemed very real. Yeah, I'm thinking about because um, I already poured gasoline all over the house. I might just set it on fire. Okay, well we don't need to do that. Okay. Police quickly responded. And when they arrived, a 28-year-old male opened the front screen door and stood in the doorway or just outside that doorway. Officers gave him several verbal commands 
uh, to that male to put his hands up and walk towards them. The male complied for a very short time. This is video police released Friday. Officers say the man, 28-year-old Andrew Finch, who police call an innocent victim, lowered his hands to his waist and quickly pulled them back up. During for those officers' safety, the officer on the north side fired one round striking the male. When police went inside, they found no hostages, no one dead, no one even hurt. This prank phone call, we don't see it as a joke. It's not a prank. It only heightened the awareness of the officers, and we think uh, led to this uh, deadly encounter. Now Finch's family wants justice. I keep thinking this, this is a dream. I'm going to wake up, and he's going to be here. But the cops can't just go around shooting people without any consequences. They cannot do that. Police are working to find out who made the fake 911. Well, I, I think we should focus on the positive in this story. At least the cops didn't shoot an unarmed black man, right? So thank God for that. At least at least the cops weren't racist. It was a white cop shooting a, a white guy. Well, shooting a, a Latino guy, so just kind of moderately racist. I mean, this is really bad epistemics. The cops roll up with these SWAT teams on the basis of one dodgy anonymous phone call. I mean, how do you know what you know? You get one anonymous phone call and you roll up with a SWAT team? Right? If it's an anonymous phone call, then you should do some investigation first. There's a big difference between an anonymous phone call where you've got hundreds of these pranking, swatting examples all through the country. You'd think the police would have learned something by now. Right? You've got hundreds of fake swatting calls going on, and yet you get one anonymous call and you just roll up looking to murder someone. It's absolutely disgusting how the police operate here. They should send one car to, they should call the house, perhaps send one car. If all you've got is an anonymous phone call, right? There's a big deal. If I fell for every anonymous tip that I got, like I'd have a bizarre show filled with conspiracy theories and right-wing tropes. I mean, God forbid that I, I call up using uh, what, a, a VPN and, and say, oh, my, my friend Laponius, he's getting ass raped by Uncle Wally again. And he looks like he's in really desperate shape. And Uncle Wally's got a gun to his head. And this is really bad. And then I say, this is happening at 118 Smith Street in Chicago. And then they sh roll up to Laponius's home. And what, they're going to have guns blazing because, like, one anonymous bloke, you know, called up and said, Uncle Wally's back at it. Uncle Wally is shagging Laponius, and Laponius is crying piteously. He's saying, stop, stop, stop. But Uncle Wally has a derringer to his head, and he won't stop raping my friend Laponius. This is just too awful to watch. I'm just a concerned citizen. I was just going for an evening stroll, and Uncle Wally, the rapist, is, is back at it. Please, please send SWAT, guns blazing. You got to stop this. I mean, epistemics, guys. You got to have good epistemics, meaning epistemology is the study of how do we know what we know. One f anonymous phone call is not a solid basis for sending in SWAT, guns blazing. All right? It's like, let's say I start doing a live stream and, and I announce, hey, I am your king. And you will say, well, I didn't vote for you. 
And I'd have to inform you, you don't vote for kings. And you say, well, how'd you become king then? And I tell you, the lady of the lake, Haram clad in the purest shimmering Samite, held aloft Excalibur from the bosom of the water, signifying by divine providence that I, 40, was to carry Excalibur. That is why I am your king. And how would you respond? You'd say, listen, strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Supreme aquatic power derives from a mandate from the masses, not from some farcical aquatic ceremony. Look, you can't expect to wield supreme power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you. You can't expect to wield supreme power just because you get an anonymous phone call that Uncle Wally is back at it. Right? You can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some rando calls you up and say, Uncle Wally's doing it again. And then you just scream out at someone to hold his hands up. Right? Someone who's you know, studying the Bible, having a perfectly innocent evening. You roll up, guns blazing, and you're screaming, hold your hands up, hold your hands up. And the guy's understandably in shock. And when he doesn't perfectly comply, you just shoot him down like a dog. Come on, man. That's really bad epistemics. We were about 11 times higher than the national average here in Wichita. I received an email, and the person had said, it had been a minute since I've given you anything. Your shooter's Justin Rapp. Well, yeah, let's look on the bright side. One of these migrant children may become an incompetent police chief. This is the promise of America. You're the first to publish his name. Yes. Justin Rapp is a police Rapp officer. Justin Rapp department now, eight years. He has formal military training. He has been featured in episodes of Cops a couple of times. Get on the ground right now! He has gotten many reports of uh, use of force against him. We've been told there was around a dozen incident reports against Justin before the shooting of Andrew Finch. On one of our highway overpasses, we put arrest officer Rap. We just wanted to make sure Rap's name stayed important. That's also why we made the t-shirts. Yep, Justin Rap, and uh, he's he's a big star on the TV show Cops. Looks like he's gonna lose it here. Yep, hit a fence. This is not hide and seek. We know where you're at. What you want? What you want? What you gonna do? Yep, Justin Rap. Star of the Cops TV show. The car chase was fun. Yeah, uh, we'd been observing a uh, known drug location. Saw a vehicle. Yep, this is the guy who just uh, murdered someone. Great job, dude. Great job. Just roll up. You got an anonymous phone call. Let's let's just start murdering people. Mr. Pig. The defense attorney filed an appeal on behalf of Justin Rapp. This is just another ploy that he likes to use to continue collecting the money. I've mentioned before he had deposed people that had no business about that night. And he's just not a good man. My lawyer also thought that he would appeal because that's just how he is. I've never met a man as evil as that person. This particular incident, everyone who is directly involved in this tragedy has had justice meted to them except the local policeman. And we really do need to address that 
we need to have better communication, better understanding with the public and police, and this is not helping. This needs to get resolved. Right, it comes down to epistemology. How do you know what you know? One anonymous phone call, one anonymous email, one anonymous comment in the chat should not be a basis for just going in guns blazing. Right, that, that's, that's stupid. You know what's also stupid is catching monkeypox. So you know how you can avoid it? Don't participate in any gay orgies. Right? Just try to hoard off on the gay orgies for a few months till we get a vaccine. Something called monkeypox is apparently spreading across the country. The new cases tonight in Missouri, New Jersey, and Washington. So you'd think the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, might want to stop the spread of monkeypox. But no, the real problem with monkeypox is that people are embarrassed of having monkeypox. We have to fight, not the disease, the stigma. Jason Rance is our man in the Pacific Northwest. He joins us now with the CDC monkeypox plan. Hey, Jason. Hey, Tucker, it would appear that the CDC is getting into the sex advice business. They've got new guidance on how to hook up while infected with monkeypox, because why let the open sores or crusty scabs get in the way of a good time? <laughs> so it's a two page document with advice. And it starts out by saying, hey, if you can skip the physical and go virtual, do that. So they're talking about sexting or showing off on a webcam. But if you must be in the room with the person, they recommend that you practice self-love with the partner six feet away from you. Now, the CDC does say that you should probably skip the kissing, but you should feel free to use props if you would like. Just make sure you're washing them when you're done. But if you absolutely need the physical contact, the CDC recommends that you have sex with your clothes on or at the very least cover up the rash, sores or scabs. So really leaning into the romance there. Uh, the problem is, given the fact that they commonly occur, the scabs and the rash. Yes, remember, guys, homophobia is a public health crisis. Ash and whatnot, it's occurring on people's genitals. So the advice is obviously odd. And it's important to understand here, the CDC guidance isn't about preventing the spread of monkeypox. It's about preventing the stigma so you feel comfortable having sex, which is how monkeypox is being spread right now. It totally makes sense. It's like the fentanyl deaths aren't the problem. It's the fact that people feel ashamed of dying from fentanyl. Yeah. <laughs> it's like these people totally perverse. Jason Rance, who's chronicled so much perversity for us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> Thanks, really appreciate so it. Here's a reassuring story. China is busy testing hypersonic missiles that can strike anywhere on the planet without being detected. But the U.S. military is on it. They are rising to the challenge, the strongest military in the world. Here's a training video from Joe Biden's Pentagon. This was released by the U.S. Navy, obtained by the Washington Free Beacon. Hi, my name is Johnny, and I use he, him pronouns. Hi, and I'm Panji, <laughs> and I use she, her pronouns. And we're here to talk about pronouns. What is a pronoun? pronoun is how we identify ourselves apart from our name and it's also how people refer to us in conversations using the right pronouns is a really simple way to affirm someone's identity it is a signal of acceptance and respect a really good way to do that is to use inclusive language instead of saying something like hey guys you can say hey everyone or hey team so that's the u.s navy under joe biden why not just make it really clear get right to the point we surrender we are totally incapable of fighting an adult war against an adult country like China, or for that matter, the Taliban, we give up. We're going to talk about pronouns. Tom Fitton is the president of Judicial Watch. He's just obtained slides showing that critical race theory, racism, is still being taught at West Point. And boy, is it. He joins us tonight. Tom, thanks for coming on. So tell us what's happening at West Point. We had to sue to get the documents, and they're mandating, we're pushing critical race theory training on the cadets there. This is where our next officer corps is trained at West Point, and they're being told 
Uh, whiteness is something uh, that is what the critical race theorists say, uh, full of characteristics that are negative. They suggest that uh, blacks are still uh, the equivalent of slaves today. Uh, and uh, they're pushing queer theory, which is a, a, a cousin of the Marxist uh, critical race theory. And so, you know, our military is being undermined from within. And, you know, this is the type of Marxist revolutionary language that our military was designed during the Cold War to try to protect this nation from. And now they're on the inside. And, you know, this is the Biden Defense Department, because you remember Trump tried to slow this down. And it's now the animating uh, force for the Biden administration. And our military is being abused. So, you know, you're pointing out senators are controlling our guns, right? while ignoring the abuse of our cadets at West Point with racist theories. When you have a white cadet come in and told they're bad people because of the color of their skin, or blacks are told they're, they're being oppressed because of their color of their skin, that's racism. And frankly, it's banned under law. And uh, there's, there's got to be a rescue operation uh, for our military from this woke madness. Yeah, it might start from Republicans like Dan Crenshaw who claim they care about the military, but keep funding this stuff without fixing it, destroying the most powerful military in the world, obviously. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom Fitton. <laughs> yeah. Hey, team. Let's go pop some goops. I said goop. I didn't say the, the word that ends with K. I, I... Anyway, Officer Justin Rapp. Uh, the three billboards or whatever. And she said, why don't we do that? Billboards are designed to catch your attention. But four digital billboards in Wichita aren't marketed towards getting your money. They're asking for justice. Make sure you're quad boosted, that you cover up your monkeypox lesions, mask up, and hit the bathhouse, guys. He didn't follow any procedure, any protocol. He didn't even bother to think that this guy might be a hostage. He just shot him dead, and it could have happened to any of us. So I think that's why the community has stayed so involved in pushing for the arrest of Justin Rapp. He needs to be charged for the murder of Andrew Finch. The cop can't just go around shooting people without any consequences. I mean, that cop murdered my son. My granddaughter saw the shooting and had to see her uncle lay there dying. She's only 17, but she's had a lot of trauma in her life. And I don't know if she'll survive this. I don't know. I'm not gonna lie, I did contemplate suicide many times after that, you know? But I just, it's just, it's just, hold on, I'm sorry. But uh, the the murder guy's niece clearly had some issues with. She did commit suicide after this. She was forced to see her father figure dying. She could not stand the constant nightmares and flashbacks, and she could not stand to be alone. Exactly a year and two weeks. Exactly, this past January 11th, Adelina shot herself in the head. And uh, the police officer, he's still employed by the Wichita Police Department. I mean, he's not out on the street shooting people anymore. He's in administration. Better boy. Yeah. So uh, two other people end up dying because of the, the murderous cop. Okay. Let's talk about the world's most boring headline. So... First entry here, small earthquake in Chile, not many dead. This is from the late 1920s. And then Michael Kinsley writes in 1986, readers of the magazine I work for, The New Republic, were asked if they could find a newspaper headline more boring. 
from the one over Flora Lewis's column in the New York Times, April 10, 1986. Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. So references to Canada, guys, they're essential. They're not essential to a boring headline. They are merely helpful. So almost as boring as Worthwhile Canadian Initiative was the headline on a column by Times economic correspondent Leonard Silk, April 23rd, U.S. Leadership Needed. So the editors at the New York Times op-ed page are geniuses at coming up with headlines that refer to nothing. I was impressed by trade, a two-way street, and positively bowled over by beyond the news, larger issues. And how about thoughts at graduation time? My favorite genre of boring headline is the one gravely informing you that a development you weren't aware of and don't care about has reversed itself, ideally in some distant part of the globe. Nepal Premier won't resign. Or chill falls on warming relations between Australia and Indonesia. Or how about University of Rochester decides to keep name. Right, This is in the New York Times, all right? These are in the New York Times. And then Washington Post, dramatic changes fail to materialize on Hill. Then there's surprises unlikely in Indiana. So it's a kind of a, a poignant headline from the Chicago Tribune. Now, the largest category of boring headlines falls under the general rubric of dog bites man. So it's difficult to top Soviet economy in need of changes. How about prevent burglary by locking house detectives urge but what about the wacky specificity of methodists oppose use of nuclear arms <laughs> and then here's a headline over a recent washington post column by michael kinsley sorry the deficit is a big problem so april and may brought a magnificent spring flowering of hardy perennials these are headlines that reappear regularly generally it is the news itself rather than the headliner's art that deserves the credit so these events, these headlines chronicle, can be subdivided wearily into things that always happen. B1 bomber cost expected to rise and things that never happen. Newark hopes for rebound. Other recent hardy perennial blossoms. Teamster chief may face renewed federal charges. Bush seeks New Hampshire support. East Germans open party congress. Democratic Party is a fertile source of hardy perennials. I liked Democrats' plot course, party told to end its Vietnam syndrome. Then there's Democrats' proposed shift in rules for presidential nomination. And then from the Wisconsin State Journal, you get Economist Dies. Or how's the lead headline in the New York Times, May 13? Turbulent days for Donald D. Engen. That middle initial is an especially bravura touch. Fills the reader with an urgent desire not to know who Donald Engen is and with disbelief that his days could be all that turbulent. But in the end, the judges chose a months-old subhead from the New York Times science section. Debate goes on over the nature of reality. Pretty hard to top that one. But speaking of worthwhile Canadian initiatives... Good afternoon or good evening, depending where you might be. My name is Kevin Michael Grace, and this is the KMG Show for Tuesday, June the 21st, 2022. 
was introduced to a new term, at least uh, a term that's new to me uh, yesterday. And I didn't really understand the significance of it until I had uh, finished yesterday's show. And uh, I was alerted to this by a fellow called uh, Tyler Owen, who is the Beaver Book Chair of Media, Ethics, and Communication at the Max Bell School at McGill University, the director and founder of Media Tech Dem, and host of the Big Tech and Screen Time podcast. He tweeted, I spoke with Duncan McHugh of the CBC's The Current about what we can learn from other countries about how best to tackle online harms while protecting free expression and how we may not be as divided on the solutions as we are made to believe. And so this links to a CBC a story or a, a podcast, Curbing Misinformation and Hate Speech uh, Online. So if you go to that, we find out that uh, the host describes uh, this uh, interview. How can misinformation and hate speech be curbed on social media platforms while freedom of speech is preserved? We talked to Taylor Owen, co-chair of the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression, which has just submitted its recommendations for regulating online spaces to the federal government. Well, I had not heard of the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression until, what, today? Now, apparently, this uh, organization is a very big deal. But strangely enough, despite my, um, how would I say, rather unhealthy consumption of Canadian media, I hadn't heard of this commission, which is uh, apparently going to play a significant role on regulating online spaces. So let's go to uh, democraticcommissioncanada.ca. Digital technologies are changing society. Here's how society responds. Over the next three years, more than 120 randomly selected Canadians mm -hmm, will serve on one of three national citizens' assemblies on democratic expression. Come on, this is another worthwhile Canadian initiative. I think we can all get a, get behind this, so to speak. Examining the impact of digital technologies on Canadian society. Each assembly will issue a detailed report to the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression to the federal government and to the Canadian public. We hope this initiative will help to propel an important conversation about the future of digital, <laughs> digital technologies and the public policies required to ensure these technologies support a vibrant, wait for it, democracy. <laughs> and we were talking about democracy yesterday. And democracy, of course, means they win. Always. And uh, I'm looking at uh, this group of people who are part of this uh, commission and a bunch of people at universities, including, oh, the, Har the Kennedy School at Harvard, which is always a very bad sign. Gallet Dobner, Director of Global Affairs Canada's Center for International Digital Policy. Ever heard of that? No, of course uh, you haven't. Of course you haven't heard of it uh, because these decisions, uh, Canadian decisions, are made well before they are presented uh, to the public. I remember reading years ago a story where some homosexual reporter was gloating that the decision on uh, whether to legalize homosexual marriage in Canada had been made in the Justice Department long ago, and there was nothing that was going to happen that was going to change that. And indeed, that was the case. So democratic expression, again, year two, how to make online platforms some more good transparent stuff today. and accountable to users. But more important than that is making them accountable to government censors and all in the aid of democracy. Uh, there are 13 references uh, to democracy 
on this page, including uh, the inclusion of Philip N. Howard, Director Program on Democracy and Technology and Professor of Internet Studies, Balliol College, University of Oxford. Democracy, democracy, democracy. And uh, as uh, I responded to Mr. Owen, the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression is an AstroTurf agitprop foundation paid for by the government of Canada. And if you go to their page, so many of these NGOs scroll down to the bottom and what do you find? What you find is a maple leaf and the government of Canada symbol. So the Canadian Commission on Democratic Expression had its partners. Uh, there's the McConnell Foundation and it says funded by the government of Canada. So here's another example uh, where, oh yes, things are changing uh, on the internet scene and there's a lot of complaints about uh, hate speech and women being driven off social media platforms. So the government wants advice. So to whom does it go? An organization which is funded by the government of Canada, which no surprise is going to tell the government exactly what the government wants to hear. Because if it doesn't, then there will be no more funding. So what is the McConnell Foundation? Uh, and, oh, it's in Redding, California. Hmm. Others might see this as a foreign interference uh, in Canadian affairs, but let's never mind that. And uh, there's something that I noted, which I'm sure, uh, well, it's these sort of things happen and you don't notice them until one day they become important. Note how free expression has mysteriously become democratic expression. And remember, the new meaning of democracy is that the globalist elite always wins. Uh, this shift from free speech to free expression, it's bad. Free speech was always understood as political speech. Well, certainly that's how the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States understood it. You get to free expression, and what does that mean? It means pornography, among other things. Uh, and it means uh, the right of people to scream obscenities in the street. It uh, means the right of people uh, to go uh, naked in public because that's all expression. And it means the right of, oh, transgressive artistes. So to, uh, I don't know, fap on stage, all of that sort of thing. <laughs> so no, just as uh, the change from free speech to uh, free expression uh, led to deleterious uh, effects, just as the change from sex to gender led to a myriad of deleterious uh, effects. So is this entirely a Canadian thing? I looked up uh, democratic expression. I did a search for it. And oh, the Brookings Institution was on this in January, 2021. Uh, the third, final, and most undoubtedly most obvious avenue for democratic expression are elections, okay. Uh, democratic expression of public opinion on animal experimentation. No, that's not what I was looking for. Uh, okay, and my own live stream today comes up. As far as I can tell, this is entirely a Canadian invention, and which means beware. That's what it means. The world needs more Canada. No, the world needs less Canada. <laughs> uh, let's go to the chat. Hello to Anron Ruslan Akhmatov, Dan Brian Frakes, who says hello, hotter and how up here, 96 degrees Fahrenheit. Hello to Don from Beyond. Joke again, 666, Hopcast 88, Justin Proto. Uh, who else do we have here? Hello to Dan Allison. 
El Paso 88 uh, notes as does Oscar Toe, a big 500 uh, episodes. Congratulations, Kevin. Well, uh, thank you uh, so much. And I want to thank all of you, uh, my loyal uh, viewers and listeners. And I want to thank you especially uh, for your continued support of this channel and for putting up uh, with me uh, through uh, my many absences, well, because of censorship and also because of oh equipment failure uh, and the like. Oh, Ruslan Akhmatov is uh, speaking to us from Chechnya. Hello to Duvid, Seraphim Agus. Hello to someone called Art Bell. Hmm. Who says, I doubt that KMG has contacted Ford, Warland, Dale, Rams, and company to show and give regards. Oh, okay. I don't know what that means. Uh, Token666 says, what's worse, living next to a vat of howler monkeys or across from Kevin's homeless asylum. Uh, Seraphim Goose says, the McConnell Foundation is huge in my area. Hello to Gamion. Uh, to divot the gnome, Oscar Tosas KMG has an interesting appeal, a nice corner of the internet with a robust chat. El Paso 88 has a puzzler for me. What's worse, Kennedy School or Rhodes Scholar? Um, there's a lot of overlap there. Is there not? But no, the Rhodes uh, Scholars Scholarship is the incubator. It's typically the incubator. Oh, there's our first siren of the show. Well, Kevin, sing the Proclaimers 500 miles, says Art Bell. Um, no, not going to do it. Uh, hello to Brandon Smith. Ruslan Akhmatov says, thanks, I enjoy his shows, but he tends to shill too much for Russia, even though I respect Russian culture. I, I don't believe that I'm shilling for Russia. I'll say this. After the collapse, the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, we went through a transitional period where the country was looted. Uh, by oligarchs, uh, where uh, the drunken buffoon Boris Yeltsin's daughter took a, a cut, not as much of a cut as she could have taken, and then Putin came in and he decided uh, to take the country back from the oligarchs, which was a very good thing. Putin has for years and years and years and years expressed a, a desire for peace and cooperation with the West, and the West has said no. And why has the West said no? Because we need an enemy. Okay, so I finally find something I can disagree with. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, our, our conflict of interest with, with Russia is just purely psychological because we, we need an enemy. There's a genuine conflict of, of interest. America wants to extend its domination. Oh, wants to spread democracy. Excuse me, wants to spread democracy. And Vladimir Putin wants to look out for what he thinks is best for, for Russia. That, uh, okay, communism destroyed. Uh, how about the Muslim world after 9-11 and other incidents? Now, we don't want to do that. That would be racist. Um, Islam is not a race. It is a universal religion. Shut up about that, okay? We can't have a, a new crusade against the Muslims because that would be racist. So what does that leave? It leaves uh, Russia. And... Okay. So much to talk about. Let's get some Tucker Carlson. Self-hating mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, yet he did something very selfish at a Juneteenth event this weekend. What did he do? He exposed a young man of color to the risk of being murdered by police. Mayor Greg Fisher selfishly allowed his face to make contact with the young man's fist. You're seeing the footage on your screen right now. The man walks up and Greg Fisher allows the man to punch him in the face, exposing that man to police brutality. Talk about systemic racism. This is not, by the way, the first time that Greg Fisher has been the 
target of violence. Earlier this year, a BLM activist and Barack Obama Foundation honoree called Quintez Brown tried to assassinate a mayoral candidate in Kentucky. So clearly there's something going on there. We hope they resolve it quickly. Clarence Thomas has been on the Supreme Court for 31 years, but you don't hear all that much about who he is. He's the most prolific Supreme Court justice in generations. He writes more opinions than any other, three times more than many of them. Now, Mark Paoletta knows Clarence Thomas very well. He's one of his closest friends. He worked with Thomas during his Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 1991. He watched Joe Biden in action. Paoletta is the co-author of the new book, Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Word. That book is out today. He's also made a film about Clarence Thomas. For a brand new episode of Tucker Carlson today, we spoke with Paoletta about what Clarence Thomas's life is like and has been like. Here's part of fascinating conversation. Watch. He was born in this little shack, uh, shanty with no electricity, just one light bulb, um, uh, you know, an outhouse, uh, just abject poverty. But it was kind of rural poverty, as Justice Thomas likes to say. And it had a community uh, where, you know, they supported each other, obviously in, in tough times down in the South. But it was a community. When he is um, uh, sworn into the Supreme Court, there's a guy there named Gary Kemp, who was a, uh, you know, I think the grandson of Lulu Kemp. And he has Clarence Thomas's birth records. He gives them to him at the, at the, at, at Clarence's. No yes. Yes. He comes up. He says, hey, I have your birth records. And by this point, right, he had been, Tom, Thomas had been just pummeled all over the place. He's like, who is this guy? And it turned out to be Gary Kemp, who was the grandson of Lulu Kemp, who delivered Clarence Thomas, you know, in this little house in, in, uh, in, in, in Pinpoint, Pinpoint, Georgia. Where famously English was not the only language spoken. Gullah Geechee was a, a Gullah Geechee? Gullah Geechee. It's, a, it's a, I think it's Gullah in Georgia, Geechee in, in, uh, in South Carolina. But it was a dialect. It was kind of West Caribbean. And again, that was kind of Clarence Thomas's first language or language he spoke. And so when he was going through the seminary and other schools, it was, you know, English was kind of a, a second language to him. Oh, and it was just so amazing. When, you, when he talks about learning sort of proper English and how long... It took him to read, and he learned this, you know, getting a dictionary in every single word uh, that he didn't know, he looked up. And it, I think it, it sort of personifies Clarence Thomas's sort of approach to life to this day, which is you figure out what you need to do, and you do it no matter what. So what jumped out about that interview is Clarence Thomas's connection with the people around him. Turns out Thomas is not I mean, just a good me, guy. He's an amazing guy, loved by the people around him, including Supreme Court justices who disagree with him. It's the opposite of what you've been told. Anyway, that's on Tucker Carlson today. It's tomorrow morning, 7 a.m., Fox Nation. Okay, so I was uh, going off on a friend today, which is not like me, normally mild-mannered, love and inclusion for all, and you're probably thinking, like, where the hell would, would, would 40 go off? Well, I, I went off because I, I think this guy gave an opinion about a sacred Washington Post article that I don't believe he read. Now, I did read this article. I, I read it, and it made basic sense to me. So, Washington Post here. Oil refineries are, Oil making, refineries a are making a windfall. Why do they keep closing? Companies see only headaches on the horizon for refineries, undercutting the White House push to boost production. News by Evan Halper. Philadelphia, as the energy crunch drives record profits at American oil refineries, the owners of what had been the largest such facility in the Northeast have no regrets about tearing the place down. Hilco Redevelopment Partners has been hauling out 950 miles of pipe from the former Philadelphia Energy Solutions refinery, abandoning the property's 150-year history of processing crude oil into fuel in the city. So this is fascinating to me. Why haven't we built any new oil refineries in 40 years and oil refineries are making record profits, but nobody wants to build any? Right? Oil refineries making windfall profits and no one's building any new ones 
and the ones we have are only closing. The firm is spending hundreds of millions of dollars to convert the 1,300-acre site along the Schuylkill River into a green, high-tech campus for e-commerce and life sciences companies. I don't even know how to operate a refinery, said Roberto Perez, chief executive of Hilco, which bought the property in a bankruptcy auction in 2020, a year after a massive explosion at the refinery rattled the city. It's not what we do. Oil refineries across the country are being retired and converted to other uses as owners balk at making costly upgrades and America's pivot away from fossil fuels leaves their future uncertain. The downsizing comes despite painfully high gasoline prices and as demand globally ramps up amid sanctions on gasoline and diesel produced in Russia, the third biggest petroleum refiner in the world, behind the United States and China. Five refineries have shut down in the United States in just the past two years, reducing the nation's refining capacity by about 5% and eliminating more than 1 million barrels of fuel per day from the market, leaving the remaining facilities straining to meet demand. Yet even at this lucrative moment for what's left of the refining industry, a White House desperate to bring down gas prices is having little success persuading owners to expand operations and more. Right, so to me, this is a fascinating story. Uh, why aren't we building any new oil refineries? And why are we simply closing a lot of refineries? And why, why can't we get new ones? Why can't we get bigger ones? Why would we not want to expand our refining capacity? So. To me, great article in the Washington Post. I was really impressed by it. But a friend friend goes off on me about it. So my friend says, whatever this article says, the opposite is what's true. Okay, so I just, I don't like when people start making proclamations about articles and books that they haven't read. To me, it's an indication that the person is arrogant and out of touch with reality and simply in love with with their own feelings and it's it's to me it's it's psychopathic behavior to be making proclamations about things that you know absolutely nothing about so and then my friend continues on i want to free luke from the washington post court i fear that he has tattoos somewhere god forbid so my washington post court consists of i read it and i subscribe to it what, you honestly think I believe every single thing that I read in the Washington Post? No, it's one of many different sources of information that I consult. So my response is, great, tell me, please, about all the new oil refineries getting constructed. Remember, his point is, whatever this article says, the opposite is true. So he is effectively saying that there are all these new oil refineries being built, which I find absolutely fascinating. Where's the evidence? But no, he has no evidence. He's just making more evidence-free assertions. So I want to free Luke from the Washington Post court. I want to free Luke from the New York Times court. I want to free Luke from the Wall Street Journal court. I want to free Luke from the academia court. Really means I never want to do any work. I never want to read anything that might contradict my feelings. Like my feelings are sufficient for analyzing the world. It's kind of goop for men tier analysis. So I, I call someone out for this, and what gets me, because I used to do shows with people who did this. They'd make all these proclamations about books they hadn't read, sources of information they never consulted. They make these sweeping critiques of things they know absolutely nothing about. And when I call them out on it, they're not the least bit embarrassed, right? When you're bloviating, when you're making all sorts of assertions about things you know absolutely nothing about, that's one thing. Right? We all 
can leave reality and get caught up in our own egos. But when it's pointed out to you that you know nothing about what you're talking about, I don't understand the person who's not ashamed. When you're not even ashamed that your, your proclamations bear no resemblance to reality, that that doesn't cause you to pause, that that just caused you to go into a 20-paragraph assertion about why you're right and why it's not a big deal to make all sorts of assertions about things you know nothing about, to me, you're, you're cruising for a bruising, right? I have not seen examples in my life where people confidently make proclamations about things they know nothing about, and then when it's pointed out to them that they know nothing about what they're talking about, they then defend and give all their energy to defending their attitude, right? If you're not ashamed when someone points out that you're just bloviating, when you're not ashamed when someone points out that you're making all sorts of reckless assertions that have no evidence for them, and, and that doesn't bother you in the least, there's something, uh, there's something missing in your soul. And I've never seen an example where this does not lead to terrible consequences. Because if you go through life just making all these confident assertions about things you know absolutely nothing about, making proclamations on uh, sources of information that you never even read, I've never seen this end well. This ends with people making tweets about death to the Jews. This ends with people alienating themselves from friends and family, from employers and clients, from everyone around them, right? To, to go through life just, just uh, proclaiming about things that are very, the very opposite of, of reality. And then, then the answer, okay, when, when I, I call someone out for this, making proclamations about articles and books that he hasn't read. And the, the primary response is, well, it's not a credible source of information for me anymore. So he doesn't have to do the work. He doesn't have to read the article that he just proclaimed that the very opposite of this fascinating article is true, even though he has absolutely no evidence. So saying that it's not a credible source of information for you anymore, it, it's the equivalent of saying, oh, Alexandra Daddario, just... Just not a uh, hot check for me anymore, right? Like, what kind of argument is it to say, oh, Washington Post is just not a credible source of information for me anymore? As though, like, oh, I caught COVID and it wasn't a big deal, therefore we should accept that as having universal validity. Or, you know, I read this week's Torah portion and it was boring. I mean, what kind of plebeian le level of, of analysis is that? Oh, you know, Scarlett Johansson, I, I just don't find her attractive. Right, Rachel McAdams, she's just, uh, she's nothing to me. I, I just don't find the, the Wall Street Journal credible anymore. I mean, I, I haven't, haven't read 10 articles in it in the, in the past year, but I just don't find it, it credible anymore. Right, I, I, when, when this kind of emptiness is pointed out to what I don't understand someone who's not ashamed, but I do know someone who's not ashamed because is how I've often lived my life, right? From earliest age, from, from learning to talk, probably from age five onward, I have been making all sorts of proclamations about things that I know very little about and sounding absolutely sure. I, I was imitating my father. I grew up with, with a man who had a PhD in rhetoric in addition to a PhD in eschatology, and he was always making all these sweeping proclamations about things he, he didn't know very much about, and when it would be pointed out to him, he didn't apologize. He wasn't ashamed. 
he, he just uh, redoubled, right? He, he just locked and loaded rhetorically. So it reminds me a bit of the late scholar Jacob Taubus. And I just finished a biography of Jacob Taubus, and people got sick of his loud definitive proclamations about things he didn't know very much about. And so a group of his colleagues at the Jewish Theological Seminary kind of set him up. They they started having a discussion about a medieval Jewish rabbi who didn't exist. And Talbus interrupts the discussion and goes on this long discursion about a rabbi who doesn't even exist, but making all these you know, powerful points, and you really need to understand this. And and uh, then, then finally, his colleagues pointed out that they just made the guy up. And so, hey, if that worked for Jacob Talbus, you know, why would that work for me? Well, Jacob Talbus led a miserable life. He, he frequently had some useful insights. He frequently acted as a conduit b- between people. He was the internet before the internet existed. So I'm not saying his entire life was u- useless. But there's no happy life where, where you go through it making loud proclamations about things you know nothing and condemning other people who actually go to the work, who go do the work of actually studying various sources of information, right? Other people do the work and you condemn them for doing the work because, oh, doing that kind of work, it's just not credible to me anymore. It's not credible to me to do intellectual labor, right? Because I just have to consult my feelings. All I need are my feelings, bro. Right? Uh, oh, you know, other people who, who devote their entire lives to a topic, well, they're, they're just not credible to me anymore because I can think up 15 reasons why I can just dismiss anybody's opinion who doesn't matter to me. And so I frequently live in my own fantasy world. Obviously, you know, I must be in, in a fantasy world to do as, as much live streaming as, as I, I do. And guess what? I am the hero of my own story. I tell myself, wow, when people. When people look at these live streams, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years later, they'll realize, you know, how much, you know, solid intellectual content is is in them, that that this was some of the most prescient analysis of the world around us in 2022, right? I I tell myself all sorts of stories about, you know, what I'm doing is going to echo in history, right? I'm I'm not just producing this live stream for the 13 live viewers. I'm doing it for history. Now, I'm documenting what life is like June 21, 2022. (laughs) And so, I mean, we're all the heroes of our own journey, right? And to an extent, that's healthy. To an extent, that's adaptive. We'd be crushed by our own insignificance if we didn't have this exaggerated sense of our own importance. But along with many adaptive traits, it becomes maladaptive when you take it too far. And when you start condemning other people for doing the work that you're too lazy to do and making fatuous statements about things you know nothing about, uh, that's maladaptive behavior and it's going to bite you in the ass. I've never seen, never seen that work out well. Hey, I'm, I'm having a couple issues here in that I want to I be thinking the way that you are, right? I want to be mm-hmm. thinking that this is a fluid situation and that the people have some kind of way of dealing with this one way or the other. But then I, I start looking at, at, maybe it's just that I spend too much time on social media these days or whatever, but the cows dying and the sheep dying and all of the food processing plants setting on fire yeah. and all of this shit, like, I can't help but think it's being done on purpose. Oh, it and is. if it, no, but I'm saying like actual, like either military action by the Russians or the Chinese, or it's 
I, I can't think it's domestic terrorists. Like, I, I think they would, they would be at least looking for them right. if we thought that. But it seems like I wouldn't put it past Biden to just not care. You know, I mean, he's so corrupt and he's so paid off that I, I wouldn't be surprised if they were like, oh, we're going to do all this and it's good for you. Don't worry. And he'd be like, yes, sir. You know, oh, yeah, no, no, it, it, it's, it's absolutely deliberate. And we are being everybody is being betrayed at, at, you know, at every level all across the West here in the United States. Like they're they understand that, you know, it's this is their this is their time. Whenever I hear the word betrayal. And it, it's like a genuine expression coming from the heart. I, I know that I'm dealing with an immature attitude to reality. So betrayal is the hyperbolic word that we use for when other people don't have the priorities that we expected from them, right? Whenever you have any kind of relationship within that relationship contains the, the capacity for betrayal. You can't relate to anyone without creating the possibility that you will feel betrayed when they make choices or say words or do actions that you didn't anticipate when they have a different set of priorities from you. I'm the shine. This is their time to destroy everything and to kill as many people as possible. That's what they're planning on doing. I'm not saying. So th this idea that the Western elites are just trying to kill as many people as possible. This is their time to shine, that they're engaged in some kind of controlled demolition. Well, where is it better? You think it's better in Nigeria? You think life is better in, in North Korea? You think life is significantly better in Thailand? It's going to be, you know, we've talked about this forever. It's real. These people are fucking vandals. It's intentional. They hate us and they want to kill us. Get comfortable with that idea. This is hyperbolic, right? They hate you. Well, you certainly seem like you hate them, right? Elites are people just like you and me who just so happen to have an elite position. And they probably have some more skills and some more assets and some more social capital than we do. But they have hatred and they have love. I mean, we have two, at least two billionaires who've donated money to VDARE. So it's not like elites are some homogeneous group, right? Elites are all over the map. Yeah. And now what are you going to do about it? Well, you can, you know, you can pick up a rifle and you can, you know, get shot by the police because you haven't convinced enough of your normie, you know, enough of the normies to rise. And Laponia says the point is that they're trying to lower the United States to the level of Nigeria. Well, Where's, where's, the, where's the evidence for that? So global elites have essentially doubled our lifespans over the past 120 years. Uh, America is stronger now vis-a-vis -vis its rivals than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Right? People up around the world are pouring their money into U.S. dollars. Like Russia's fiasco in Ukraine shows how incompetent they are. So yeah, we have some some uh, pronoun gay uh, videos being made by the U.S. military, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily less competent than the harder-looking Russians and Chinese. Up against you, or you can get local, and you can get smart, and you can shore up the local food industry. And if they're you know, going to kill 10,000 cows, well, you know, okay, we'll figure it out. Okay, you're going to kill everybody's cows. All right. And when we find you, dude, it's going to be ugly. Like, if, if it keeps up like this, it won't even matter if they did it or not. I'm telling you, someone is going to walk into a conference that Bill Gates is, talk, is, is speaking at, and they're going to walk up with a gun and they're going to put six in his belly, in his wheat belly. And that's going to be the end of it. I mean, I'm not doubting what you're saying. It's just, and, it's, it's, and then, and then the shit just gets crazy from there. And then, they, you know, I'm dead serious. Like, well, look what happened have... with Archer with uh, Franz Ferdinand. I mean, he went What's down. That? You know? What's that? I mean, World War One was started over a bullshit right. assassination that nobody seemed to care about. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's not outside the realm of possibility. And what you were talking about with them making a, a real play for the Donbass. 
it's not even that like the, the Americans can let this drag on until they like decide to with that, like, make I'll... a stand or even help the Ukrainians make a stand. The minute that that things die down even slightly, China's going to make a play for Taiwan. There's no doubt about it at this point. Like they're openly saying they're going to do it. And America, I can't imagine what they could possibly do about it. You know, uh, short of us actually going I, I, to I war with China. China I, I almost think that it, I, I'm not convinced of that, by the way. I, I, I think that there's nothing. I don't think China gains anything by, by taking Taiwan as long as we don't keep talking about, you know, wanting to um, defend Taiwan. I, we keep pushing this to the point of making them scared that we're going to do something dumb and then put them in a position where they feel like they have to. Like we have. Okay. What kind of business uh, shuts down when profits are at an all time high? Well, they're not doing it because they're stupid. They're doing it because they're responding to incentives. Closures are imminent. The futility of the White House effort came through in the response to letters President Biden sent this week to the nation's major oil companies, chastising them for squeezing historically high profit margins out of their refineries. At a time of war, refinery profit margins well above normal being passed directly onto American families are not acceptable, Biden wrote. Biden threatened to invoke emergency powers if the companies don't bring prices down. The companies are unmoved. The profits follow years of heavy losses at many facilities after demand plunged wait, wait, during wait. the pandemic. Wait, wait, wait. Breaking news. Thank you, Laponius. Uh, this is going to fix our inflation problems. Wow, our economy is going to be doing so much better now. Biden to appoint first Native American to serve as treasurer. This is awesome. Lynn Maloba, the lifetime chief of the Mohegan tribe, will be the first Native American to serve as U.S. treasurer. And this is really going to start turning things around fast. Great news. Unpredictable shifts in oil markets had created a challenging business climate before that. Even at this moment of windfall refinery earnings, when the profit margin on each barrel of oil processed has jumped from a dollar or two a year ago to as much as $18 today, investors are hardly jumping at the opportunity to enter the sector. They fear the profits are short-lived. The administration's environmental priorities, as well as rising public and corporate concern about climate change, would make many refineries obsolete in the not-too-distant future. Building and upgrading the mammoth structures is a messy, expensive undertaking that can drag on longer than a decade, strain the finances of even the biggest fossil fuel giants, and run the risk of getting abandoned before that investment is returned. Yeah, there's been a big shift since 2014 against investing in fossil fuels. Let's see what Stephen James has to say. They, really? It's an interesting thing. Now, because Elliot's here, I think we should, it's only fair that we look at uh, somebody else from the scene here. Dude, uh, pillar of the community, triple vaxxed and boosted up the backside. Luke Ford here, dude. Luke Ford has a different take. Let's have a look at somebody else's idea on leak theory. Right, so I don't think that the media propaganda and uh, educational propaganda and cultural propaganda and they, right, the shadowy they who are supposedly controlling us, I don't think they have nearly as much power as you probably think they do. So this conspiratorial mindset that there's this shadowy group, the, you know, the banker class, the, the, the deep state, the intelligence community is just manipulating most of our citizens and, you know, people are just sheep in their hands. I just don't think it's true. And it echoes. It echoes with what happened in the late 1960s, early 1970s with left-wing terrorism. Right, why was this there, this surge of left-wing terrorism in the late 1960s, early 1970s, a terrorism far more severe 
far more debilitating, that killed far more people than what we have in our present day from Antifa and what we have in our present day from right-wing sources. And the reason you had this surge of left-wing terrorism was that the left in America and in Europe, particularly in Germany, became convinced that the consciousness of the people had been irremediably warped by capitalism. So just like you believe that the consciousness of the people is irremediably warped by our educational system and by the news media and by shadowy elites, right, the left also believed that the consciousness of people was irremediably warped by capitalism. And so because the consciousness of the people is warped, then you probably think on the right right now that uh, politics doesn't really matter because it's just like shadowy elites who are running things. And people on the left who went into left-wing terrorism, such as the Weathermen Underground and the, the Red Army, the Biden-Meinhof complex in Germany, they simply believed that the con consciousness of people was so warped that politics was absolutely useless because people were not free to really make decisions because they lacked the ability to navigate the system. So whether you think it's a an oppressive capitalist system that's warping people, whether you think it's an oppressive system uh, that's run by the deep state. I'll just catch up with my earphone here. Come on, Stephen. That's dead air, bro. So Luke goes on to psychoanalyze you who believe in leaked theory there. Okay, now look, don't blame Luke. Don't blame Luke. He's had a few vaccinations out the backside, dudes. One quite recently. Um, but he does go a bit far here in what he how he characterizes the elite theorists out there. By the banker class, by the intelligence community. Either way, you're essentially saying the people are too stupid to have to understand what's going on. The people are just sheep. And what this leads to is... Uh, two primary responses. One is just apathy with regard to our wider world, our community, with regard to the political, with regard to making social and cultural change. You just give up, right? Because shadowy forces are just too powerful. So this tends to be the response of losers, right? People who are losing at life, people who are unable to keep up, people who have the benefits of freedom but then are unable to construct a coherent identity that works for them. And so they see their peers moving on ahead of them, accumulating wealth, accumulating prestige, building a family, right? building a career, building happiness, right? If you see your peers, people who know more. So another sign that you're dealing with someone who's essentially empty inside and of bad character is instead of mounting an argument, they just laugh and, and sniffle and uh, scratch their thighs. Right? Dead giveaway, you're dealing with someone who's empty inside and can't mount an argument. If he had an argument, he'd mount it, but he can't, so he just chuckles and scratches. More intelligent or talented than you, being much more successful than you in life, it's uh, very tempting to... So do you think this guy is training to be a doctor? You think he earns six figures? Do you think he's a nuclear physicist? You think he's on a, a great trajectory in life? You think he's celebrated by his community? You think he's out there volunteering 10, 15 hours a week to make the world around him a better place? Dissociate <laughs> from reality, 
say, oh, this is so confusing, and then choose an explanation for your confusion. Oh, it's this or that conspiracy, right? And these malevolent forces, they're just way too powerful for me to take on. Right? There's, there's nothing I can do. There are these shadowy conspiracy JC, this groups one's that are just absolutely for you, running things. Buddy. So that's the reaction of losers. Now, people who feel that they have agency, people who aren't losers but still believe that the consciousness of people is warped, that uh, the people are too stupid, too manipulated, too propagandized. We have to see what's really going on, all right? Then if you think there's some shadowy group that's warping the people and that conventional politics is useless, then you're very likely to take violent action, all right? If the system is corrupt and cannot be fixed through conventional means, and you feel that you're a person who has agency, then it's very likely. So if he had an argument, he'd make one. But I'm really impressed that he, he's stepping away from his six-figure job to, to make uh, derisory grunts and sounds about what I think is a series of really good points. Good job, Forty. You'll become sympathetic, if not an active participant, in terrorism. Ah, uh, so, dude, look, I don't know what to tell you about that. Um, Yeah, he doesn't know what to tell you about that, because if he had an intellectual point to make, he'd make it. Maybe Ralph was right about our leader, who knows? <laughs> but anyway, I'm not talking about him for another month. But that was a couple of contrasting views there. I think what I've done, dude, I've managed to distill down this question about elite theory into an example of two different viewpoints there. And I think my folks are here with the doggo. Great job there, Stephen. Uh, Jewel Citizen says, Luke Ford is fundamentally broken. Sad, really, as he is a bright fella. So sad. So very, very sad. So what else do we have? We've got... Uh, Got some millennial woes here. We got some. What do we got? Some e of the Jones. United States, which is the source of wealth. I think you're onto something there, Mike. And uh, Shylock, uh, with his hot little ducats, uh, was probably wrong. Uh, well, moving on to uh, the question of, okay, you guys, we're going to ban you and deplatform you because you just said that these vaccine injuries might be part of the cause of the economic crunch. What's your evidence for vaccine injuries? There are no vaccine injuries. Well, there's all kinds of interesting evidence pointing in that direction. Uh, okay, I'm pretty tolerant of many things, but uh, I'm not really tolerant of these factory assertions that uh, you know all these people are are being you know killed by vaccines for, for COVID when we just have no evidence. Now, why would anyone consider? So let me today tell you about Edward Dutton's wife calling me a nutter. I'm also going to tell you why I hate Edward Dutton. I'm going to. Why would anyone think this guy's a nutter? He's, he's one of the greatest intellectuals of our time. I'm going to tell you why I hate Jordan from the Mess Squad. I'm going to tell you why I hate my brother. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, so he's going to tell you why he hates all these people. His, here at last is the voice of Saturday. And I'm also going to tell you why I am sick to death of absolutely fucking everything. Why I hope that the world gets blown up and everyone dies. And why I want someone to shoot me through the back of the fucking head. So let me begin with oh, Edward Dutton's wife. Now, Edward Dutton, who if you don't know, he's a, he's a genius academic who, who got a, an amazing PhD from the great Aberdeen University. 
um, in an amazing subject, which I think is, is religious education. So he, he's this really genius, he's a genius academic. And he, he, I made that video talking about him and, and, and talking about what an idiot he was. He then responded by saying that that video proved his point. And this discuss Edward Dutton's wife then came onto Twitter to call me a nutter. Let me just read some of her dumb tweets that she sent to me. It has been going on for a while, but she says a few things here. So she says, the professor, meaning Edward Dutton, doesn't fall for conspiracy theories made up by kids who live in their parents' basement. But really, who does? <laughs> Exclamation mark. <laughs> who does? Who falls for these conspiracy theories online? One thing I learned the hard way was as once upon a time, I was indeed stupid enough to be one of those who did fall for some of them. Oh, wise fucking words from Edward Dutton's wife there. Yes, thank you. Yes, I just need to train myself not to be stupid. One thing I learned was to check who's telling the story and take that into consideration, at least. It's actually usually one of the most important things in the picture, any and all pictures. If you're a real truth seeker like I am, you will be prepared to hold your hands up when you're wrong and also be glad to have come across the truth on a matter you were wrong about, realising otherwise you'd be wrong forever. So this is Edward Dutton's stupid fucking wife. If you want to look at her, I'll see if I can share the screen. Wow. I absolutely detest this woman. Here she is. Um, let's see. That's her. So... She made a really bad decision to tackle this guy. I mean, it, it's, it's a really stupid decision to go on Twitter and call this person or that person another. Just, just ignore them, right? Where would, she, where would she do this? Bad decision. I hope you get a good look at her there. Um, that's, that's his wife. And that's, she said all these things, calling me a nut job. And I, I've just fallen for a bunch of conspiracies. I've fallen for a bunch of conspiracies online which have been invented by kids and if i'm if i want to learn anything in life i should hold my hands up and admit that i got it wrong and what i fucking hate about this stupid fucking woman edward dutton's wife and edward dutton as well is that in all of this in all of this they will never fucking consider that we might even have a point i mean it's not i'm not even asking that they might think that uh, we're right but they can't even consider that we've got a point they won't even get to the stage where they say hmm well actually there are all these anomalies about 9 11 uh, but they can't so has uh, Thomas Baden Reese ever asked why is it that so many people don't consider that I might have a point? Like, is, is there something about me? Is there something about the way I speak? Is there something about my self presentation? Like, what is it about me that causes all these people to immediately dismiss me? Okay, how about some introspection, man? Can actually be explained away in a different way. They can't even get to that stage. They can't even get to that stage. Yeah, the fault's obviously with everybody else. Everybody else doesn't understand. Everybody else is too stupid. Everybody else is too thick. Everybody else is too cowardly. Everybody else is too craven. Everybody else sucks. I'm the lone truth teller. Because um, it's just like it's completely ruled out. You are assumed to be mentally impaired if you have this opinion, and then they start psychoanalyzing you and trying to work out why you've come up with these opinions. What is it? It's never, it never fucking occurs to them in any of this that we came to these conclusions because they're the correct ones, because they're the truth. It's where the truth lies. No, that is simply off the table. And as soon as you start talking about this stuff, they label you as mental. They lock you up in a little prison. And then when you start screaming and shouting, they come back and say, why are you screaming and shouting? You, you, obviously, you obviously belong here. You're acting like one of the mentally ill prisoners so you belong here and i'm sick to death of this fucking gaslighting imagine how fucking stupid are these people never ever ever does it cross their minds that what we are saying is correct they, they won't even look at it it is just it is off the table from the very beginning to even consider that we might be right and all they do after that is gaslight you and come up with reasons as to why you've got you've gone mentally insane and this is the same as the same as my fucking brother
So it cannot possibly that uh, they have an important critique to make, or that there may be something about your 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 self presentation that causes people to distrust what you say. Who I absolutely detest. I've had this argument with him so many times over the past nine years, and you know, thankfully, I told him to fuck off three years ago, and I told him I wanted nothing ever to do with him again. In, he's like, oh, I'm so worried about you. You're my brother. I love you. Why? What's gone wrong with you? Why are you so angry all the time? Yeah, wow, how pathetic is that? He cares about his brother? Wow, I mean, his brother loves people. I mean, his brother may want to maintain human connection. His brother may want to keep keep the, the family together. Gosh, how pathetic. Time, why, why are you coming online and completing And you try, I've tried to tell him numerous fucking times, going through all the fucking evidence from 9-11 about Building 7 or about the towers coming down too fast, about the Muslim passport that survived, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't even bother to go through it at this stage. I'm so sick of trying to justify why I have the positions that I have. I'm so sick. But in any case, this a million times, I've gone over all the fucking reasons. And they just... I just got to give it to Thomas Baden Reese here. I mean, this is, this is high quality live streaming. I mean, I, I tip my yarmulke to you. You are an absolutely compelling live streamer. I'm never going to be able to touch your, your number of views. Ignore all of that and say, why have you gone insane? And I fucking hate these gaslighters. Now, let me just read you this dumb tweet from Deadwood Button that he put out today. Because this guy, this guy is a total fucking clown. He's a complete fucking buffoon. And I absolutely detest his guts. So this is what he's got to say. This is, this is what he's saying. I mean, a lot of people say, oh, we don't have, you know, fair-minded intellectual discourse on the web anymore. Well... That's not true. Listen to this. Um, about, you know, mass shootings and blah, blah, blah. He's at a Joe Biden, uh, you know, so he's telling the president of America about how to, how to control the gun, the gun problem or the, shoot, the mass shooting this problem. This is great. And, uh, Deadwood Glutton says this. Joe Biden, it's perfectly simple. Detailed mental health checks for all gun holders and no guns for anyone under 25 as schizophrenia generally only emerges in late adolescence. You don't need to thank me. What a fucking smug. <laughs> utter fucking midwit this guy is because here's the thing what is the point what is the point of me knowing back in 2013 when i got red pilled on sandy hook the, the whole all of i wish this guy was not so entertaining i wish he wasn't as awesome and compelling as he is like i wish i could i wish i could just click away from this video to go on to something else but i can't it's so good but these the i knew since that fucking time if the authorities describe someone as being mentally ill, what that actually means is if they're one of us, either they're a conspiracy nut or they're part of the far right or they're a racist or a white supremacist. It's someone who's not in, in with the program. They, 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 they're a this guy's comedy gold. He is so good at this. He is such a compelling character. He just like jumps off your computer screen. Against the LGBTQ agenda. That's what it means to be mentally ill. You fucking moron. This is. This, how can people not hate this guy? He, nine years, this is 2022. So nine years after, after the fact that I knew that this was the ploy to call, basically to call enemies of the state, the people who were speaking the truth, mentally ill. How does it take this fucking clown nine years not to understand the same fucking thing? He, by the way, this clown, Deadwood Glutton, if he hadn't have been kicked out of the establishment for talking about race or sex or whatever, he would still be part of the establishment and he would happily be locking people like us up or he'd be the, you know, he'd be the uh, psychiatrist assigned to our cases and he would lock us up, he would call us mentally ill, and he'd go away whistling with his big fat paycheck back to his fat fucking house, the fucking fat moron. This fucking spiteful mutant, Edward Dutton, couldn't give a shit about anything, and he will happily call people like us mental. He'll call us mentally insane, and he'll say that we need to be locked up. And again, he won't understand that, that, that all of this anger comes from the fact that we are right about things like 9-11. For fuck's sake. That scumbag would happily lock us up. I'm telling you now.
Every bit of strength I have to click away. That was that was genius. But that's happened to several other people now. Uh, Milo being banned from Twitter, but that was millennial. He wasn't the first one, but he was the first high-profile one. And now thousands and thousands and thousands of people have been banned from Twitter. So every it, it, I, I hate saying this, but it, it is true that one thing leads to another. First they came for for the Daily Star, <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's true. And so Spencer. I think he just has a lot of contempt for the movement. Not just he has contempt for the general public, yes, but he also has a lot of resentment and loathing towards the movement. And I think that's for reasons to do with the movement itself and a lot of the types of people who are attracted to it. But it also has a lot to do with him and his decisions, things that he's decided to do, people he's decided to associate with. Um, so it's partly his own fault. But for these mix of reasons, he now has a lot of resentment towards the movement. And so he can say, well, what good is freedom of speech if it's just going to be used by the alt-right? when the alt-right is shit. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like throwing your toys out of the pram. Uh, I think that's what Spencer is doing there. Uh, he has contempt for anything that he is not the, in the lead off, uh, possibly, but I think it's more that he just feels like he gave a lot to this movement and it fucked him over. Whereas what I would say is he gave a lot to this movement, but he wasn't able to lead it. He wasn't practical enough. He wasn't able to inspire loyalty in people, um, or at least he wasn't able to reward their loyalty, so then they turned against him and well, all these different things. Um, but fundamentally, people felt that I mean, Spencer is not Jared Taylor. I think people feel that Jared Taylor is a decent man, a good man, as well as a practical leader. He's also a good man. I think that people don't feel that Spencer is either a practical leader or a good man. He's a likable man. He's very charismatic. He's intelligent. Um, he's funny sometimes and self-effacing. And it can be hilarious when he makes comments about himself. But ultimately, he is a narcissist and probably a sociopath. Um, and I think he, he, I mean, he said as much himself, but he's, he's definitely said he's a narcissist. And th this is the whole thing. I mean, as much as other people fucked him over or let him down, he did the same to them. And I say this as someone who still has some admiration and affection for the guy. Uh, that doesn't sound too gay. Uh, I, I just feel like he could have been a lot better because now his thoughts are directed by bitterness um, towards the movement, really. And I think that's a shame. And I think that informs why he says a lot of things. It's not just that he, he likes to be contrarian. It's also that he likes to piss off the movement. He denies that, but I think it's the truth. Um, I think he distances himself from the movement without even thinking about it. He does it subconsciously. Um, he, he says things to distinguish himself from the movement as such. Okay, that's going to do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.